Hello and welcome to My Tiny Bottles, the podcast where I'm exploring my grandmother's legacy of miniature liquor bottles, one tiny bottle at a time. I'm your host, Tammy Coxon. Bottle number 25 is Seagram's Cherry Cola Schnapps. When I searched for that combination of words online, I found exactly one hit referencing a photograph. It's sitting in box 37 of the Seagram Company archive located at the Hagley Museum in Delaware. Also, it's dated 1986, so that's what I'm going to assume for this bottle. That timing makes perfect sense. The Coca-Cola Company released Cherry Coke in 1985, so it would have been a perfect opportunity to capitalize on the new soda's popularity. Cherry Coke was the first flavored Coke product, although of course in the days of soda fountains, cherry syrup was a common addition to cola. In 1982, Coke tested a variety of flavors at the World's Fair held in Knoxville, Tennessee. Cherry won out over lemon, lime, and vanilla. And while it wasn't a groundbreaking idea, it did position them to fight another cherry-flavored cola, Dr. Pepper. I could tell you more about Cherry Coke's history, but that's not the point of this project. And since there's not much more to say about Cherry Cola Schnapps itself, I'm going to start telling you about Seagram's. In my tiny bottle land, Seagram's first appears with Bottle 16, Chemino Fine Brandy, one of their many brands. I'd heard the name before, of course. Seagram's 7 and Seagram's Gin are ubiquitous brands even today. But for decades, Seagram's was the world's biggest name in the liquor industry. How that happened and how it fell apart is a story worthy of a soap opera. Although Seagram is the name all this is happening under, this story isn't really about anybody named Seagram. It's really about the Bronfman family. In 1898, Ekiel Bronfman brought his family from Tsarist Russia to Manitoba, Canada, fleeing anti-Semitism. After a variety of jobs like trading horses and selling firewood, the family eventually invested in hotels. As described by a family member later, hotel in this case was best thought of as a euphemism for a bar, a pool table, a kitchen, and a couple of rooms upstairs, with the businesses catering to the railway boom of the early 1900s. But it was a successful venture for them. Until 1915, that is, when Saskatchewan imposed prohibition, followed by Manitoba a year later. Yeah, Canada had a prohibition phase too. It wasn't just a U.S. thing, although Canada didn't enforce it with nearly so much zeal. Bar revenues and liquor sales had been key to the success of the family's hotels, so when that dried up, they had to figure out what to do. And strangely enough, it was prohibition that led them to liquor. Prohibition in Canada was a hot mess, with different laws in different provinces at different times. The Bronfman family became experts at exploiting the loopholes, purchasing a drug wholesale company, which allowed them to buy so-called medicinal alcohol in bulk to sell to druggists. One of the brothers, Sam, headed to still wet Montreal, Quebec, where he set up a store to allow travelers to stock up before train trips to the dry provinces out west. Then they set up a mail-order business involving warehouses in Montreal and Saskatchewan since interprovincial sales weren't prohibited. By the time that loophole closed, a much bigger opportunity had opened up. U.S. Prohibition. Even though Canada was facing its own prohibition, the government knew an opportunity when it saw one, so for a while there were no restrictions on Canadian distilleries and wholesalers selling to American customers, with various taxes and duties being collected, of course. When the U.S. government successfully pressured Canada to close that loophole, the Bronfman started selling to a pair of French-owned islands off the coast of Newfoundland, since France had no such rule and bootleggers operated freely from there. The Bronfmans themselves have been called bootleggers by many, but they always insisted that they acted within the bounds of the law, and a 1933 court case against them was eventually thrown out. But business was definitely booming, and faced with shortages of alcohol to buy, they opened their first distillery in 1924 in Quebec. 
And just a few years later, they would purchase a Waterloo, Ontario distilling company called Seagram, and the next phase of the story would begin. But you'll have to wait for the next bottle of Seagram's product for that part. Turns out there's a lot of it in these boxes, so it won't be long. While you're waiting, be sure to listen next week when I'll be tasting this bottle. My guest is cocktail and spirits writer Camper English, and we'll also be tasting bottle number 24, Morandini Maraschino. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss it. Check out MyTinyBottles.com for pictures of this bottle and all the bottles, and follow at MyTinyBottles on social media for more. Cheers! This episode was produced by Lester Graham. The theme song is Snooter by Josh Woodward.